Uh, but thank you. Thank you for that gracious uh, welcome and, and uh, birthday wish for me. Uh, I'm beyond blessed. I've been telling people that all morning. Uh, God's been beyond good to me. Uh, it's my privilege to be here, and it's a privilege to look into God's Word again this morning, too. So 2 Peter chapter 2. Uh, so turn there with me, as Nate just mentioned. Uh, verse 10. We're going to start in verse 10. We're going to look down through verse 17 this morning. It's kind of a, it's a connected sermon to last week. So last week we spent time as Peter introduced this idea of understanding the dangerousness of false teaching. And not only that, but how it slowly and can kind of creep its way into the family of God, but also the destructive nature of it. And what we've been focusing on as we've been in this second letter from Peter is this idea. The main subject that we've kind of pulled together and will continue to is knowing God. The more that we know God, the more that we understand him, the more that we walk our way through his word and he reveals truth to us, the more readily we'll be able to identify things that could lead us astray. Peter gives us a, a number of warnings, and today he wants us to understand the character of those who will try to lead people astray from truth. And we'll talk a little bit about that in a minute. Last week, we used the, a particular quote about false teaching. It says, false teaching has always been easy for people to get trapped in because it's typically easy, comfortable, and popular. But... Truth can at times be difficult, uncomfortable, and unpopular, but it is the truth that will set you free. The falsehoods will only continue to enslave you. And as Pastor Ben mentioned earlier, Galatians 5 verse 1 talks about the fact that we have been set free for freedom, not to go back to slavery, to the things of this world, or to our former nature. Charles Spurgeon in the middle of his ministry, started a magazine. And, and the title of this magazine was called The Sword and the Trowel. The Sword and the Trowel. And Spurgeon was referencing back to the book of Nehemiah. And if you know the book of Nehemiah, or you think, uh, can think back through it for a moment, the sword and the trowel were both signs of something for God's people. It was the fact that in order to follow God well and faithfully over a long period of time, you do need a trowel. You need to be building. You need to be building your own life around Christ. You need to be relying upon the cornerstone that he is. And you need to build into the lives of others. And that trowel was that significant piece as Nehemiah led God's people back to Jerusalem and began to rebuild the walls there was the work of rebuilding what God had established for his people. But on the other hand was a sword. And it said in the book of Nehemiah that as they were building those walls, as they were up there, they had a trowel in one hand and a sword in the other. Why? Because while building, you also need to protect. You need to be vigilant there will be people who want to encroach upon your growth, your being built upon Christ, and your building in the lives of others, and you will need the opportunity and the courage and the insight to fight those things off. The sword and the trowel. Peter enters in here in this second letter at the beginning in chapter one, by encouraging us, building us up in the great salvation that God has given us through Christ. 
So the trowel is what Peter starts with here. And he starts in in chapter one. And if you look back just to verse three, he says, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. So Peter starts with the trowel. He starts by building up the people of God. And if you remember, these people have been scattered. They are exiles. They are under tribulation and trial. They're going through difficult times. And Peter takes his first kind of chapter and his first entrance into this letter by building them up, telling them, remember who God is in your life and remember what he's done. Remember what he's done and build on that. But in chapter two, he transitions to the other hand and the sword. And the sword is to fight off invaders, to keep at bay those who would seek to destroy what God is building up. And that's where he enters in and starts talking about these false teachers, people who will lead astray from God's truth. What does it look like to follow God well? And what does it look like to discern well his truth and falsehoods that might creep into it? What does it look like to do that? Well, you have to know what you're dealing with. And that's what Peter does here in verses 10 through 17. He says, not only do I want to warn you against false teaching, which he does in the the first nine verses, but now I want you to understand what the lives of these folks look like that want to lead you astray. And you need to be warned. And you also, as the people of God, need to be vigilant. Let's read verses 10 through 17, and then we'll go back and take particularly three kind of main points that we're going to look at today about the character of these folks that would lead us astray or seek to lead us astray so that we can identify. And number one, there's two things, really. Number one, we need to be able to identify falsehoods. And number two, we need to make sure that they're not us. We don't let it creep into our lives because it is easy to go back to the old nature. And that's Satan's greatest ploy is to get you to live in slavery when Christ has set you free. So we need to be careful about both. Identifying this and those who would seek to lead us astray and also staying very far, very clear of this in our own lives so that our lives don't look like it. Chapter 2, verse 10. Let's read together. He just comes off in verse 9 talking about, if you remember, I'm going to back up to verse 9 because it's kind of a synopsis of last week. It says, Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and how to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. Verse 10. And especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their own destruction, suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions. While they feast with you, they have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed. Accursed children, 
forsaking the right way. They have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. These are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. Pray that the Lord would illuminate his word to us this morning as we look at the fact that there is judgment for those who lead God's people astray or seek to. And we need to be careful about understanding what that looks like. So today as we talk about the character of false teachers, I'm going to give you three things that Peter, that God through Peter, illuminates for us here to be aware of. One, these people that would seek to destroy the truth of God, they criticize freely. That's the first thing. They criticize freely. Secondly, we'll talk about the fact that they celebrate sin. They celebrate sin. They criticize freely and they celebrate sin. And then thirdly, they covet and they deceive. So as we're thinking our way through, and I, and I you know, as I was working my way through preparing and listening to the Lord, I, I often kind of stop in, in at different points in preparation. And I think to myself, okay, why, why does God have this for us right now? Why is it in his sovereignty, in his perfect plan, why does he have us landing here in this particular text? Because these particular texts are not the ones that uh, everybody wakes up in the morning quoting, right? This probably isn't a text that you have written on a note card or on a bracelet that you wear or have as your main verse for life, any of these particular verses, 10 through 17, right? So what does the Lord have for us as we look into it today? And one of the things that the Lord kept repeating back to me was this. It's easy to wander off. It's easy to wander off. It's easy to lose sight of where God's called you to go. It's easy to, at the beginning, just be maybe one degree off from God's truth and what he's revealed to you and called you to. But then way down the road, you end up being way out here from his straight path. It's easy to do that. And we've watched people do this over generations. You may even know some in your own life who God has revealed truth to, but somewhere along the way, they compromised. And that compromising takes them way off from God's direct plan for their life. And I think that's why God has us in this passage. One, he always knows what we're dealing with, and I don't know every single thing that you're dealing with in your life. But I do know that if we're not vigilant and careful we can just get a little bit off from God's plan. And before you know it, you're way out. Way out from his direct path. So today as we think about false teachers and what this might look like, take these three character pieces that God reveals to us in this passage and take them to heart and think about them. Not only as a protective measure as you carry your sword, your trowel in the other hand from chapter one, and as you build on the salvation and all the great things, everything we need for life and godliness that God has supplied for us in Jesus. 
and build on those things, but also hold that sword and keep out the things that would lead you astray. Verse 10. The first point here is that they criticize freely. It says, especially in verse 10, he's talking about those held for the day of judgment. He says, especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Despising authority. What does that look like in somebody's life? It looks like people who want to critique and criticize everything. But in their lack of humility, they seek to build themselves up by tearing others down. This is not the way of Jesus. It's not a life full of grace. It's not a life of humility. So when you look at these people and you look at these characteristics, the picture here is of proud people who build themselves at the expense of others. They show no respect for authority, and they are not afraid to attack and defame people who God has placed in high places or in places of authority. In 1 Peter, God revealed to us a number of ideas about what it looks like to be godly and yet submit to authority in our lives. What it looks like to be led clearly by him and also know that we are not the top of the chain. What does it look like to respect those that God's put in authority in our lives? Whether that's when you're younger and that's parents or whether that's government officials, First Peter talked to us about that, or if that's mutual respect in the home and submission the way that God's laid out or if that's in the church family. As First Peter talked about the idea that we submit to the leaders God's put in our church families, and also we all submit one to another in Christ. So what is one earmark of those who would seek to lead God's people astray? It's the fact that they always think they're right, and they criticize everybody else. First warning, don't be those people. Don't be those people. Second warning, don't hang out with those people. Don't be those people and don't be around them. People that have overly critical spirits, they suck the life out of the family of God. And it's not to be trivial. It's not to be toyed with. God's word speaks very clearly about having a critical spirit. That's not God's spirit. When you look at the fruit of the Holy Spirit in in someone's life, which should be bearing out in every believer in some way, shape, or form as we grow in those fruits, criticism's not one of them. It's not in there. Now, this doesn't mean that you can't think. It doesn't mean that you can't have differences. It doesn't mean that you can't even respectfully submit those differences. We're not all robots. God doesn't call the church family to be uniform in everything, but he does call the church family to be unified in everything. Unified in the midst of diversity. That's what the people of God should look like. 
I had described one time, I was, this was back when we were still ministering in Philadelphia, and a newer believer came to our church, and after he was there for a little while, I asked him, it seemed like one of the strangest quotes at the time, but later I really felt the Lord kind of like encouraged me with it. He said, I said, so how do you, you know, are you feeling welcome? You feel like you've connected with some people? I said, and he said, you know, I would describe this group of people as an amazing hodgepodge of people that don't look like they should be together, but for some reason are. Right? That's us. Oh, come on. That's us. We're a bunch of misfits that God has united in Christ. We shouldn't all look the same. We shouldn't all be doing the same things. That's not what the body of Christ is for. It's so there, there can be diversity in the body of Christ. But in those differences, we need to be very careful to protect our hearts. Very careful because a critical spirit creeps in so easily. I know it and you know it. It's so easy to pick things apart and even to pick other people apart. The warning here is those who do not submit to authority but instead despise it, let's go on in verse 10. They are bold and willful. So this is good to know, right? Bold and willful. These are not people who have made a mistake occasionally. These are people who decidedly go down this path on purpose. They're willfully doing it. It's not because they were ignorant. It's not because they were deceived. These are people that when you watch them, they go down this critical, this critical line, despising authority on purpose. They've decided to go there. And they keep deciding to go there. Bold and willful. They do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Who are the glorious ones? There's a lot of different thoughts on this, who, who this is referencing, right? I, I've read a bunch out of one of the things I think that kind of seems most plausible. We don't know specifically. Peter didn't mention who they were. But these glorious ones, because of the next sentence where it says, whereas angels though greater in might and power than these false teachers, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. Who do I think he's talking about here? I think he's talking about the fallen angels. And the fact that even these false teachers would seek to criticize and speak against others who have fallen out of God's favor. And they do so with a very flippant attitude and overly critical. Because what do we see in the next sentence? Even the angels, not the ones that got kicked out of heaven, but the ones that are still in heaven, they don't even talk about the people that way. They don't even talk about the fallen angels that way. They're more careful than that. They allow the judgment to fall with God because God does take care of it. He did kick them out of heaven along with Lucifer. They are, if you go all the way back to verse 9, they are the unrighteous who are under punishment until the day of judgment. God takes care of those who do these things. But too often, false teachers will creep in and want to be critical even of people you know have fallen away. And here's the issue. It makes them look good. It makes them look good by picking apart others who have fallen away. 
It's a false humility. It is actually pride that does this. We as the people of God should take no pleasure in anyone who falls away from God's grace. We should take no pleasure in anyone who rejects God's grace. It should break our hearts. And instead of judging, we should pray. You want to be careful to not be overly critical? Pray more. It's really hard to maintain a critical spirit when you are consistently and intentionally tuning your heart to God's. That's the solution here, to protect ourselves, but also to identify those who boldly and willfully just want to always be picking things apart and picking people apart. Let's go on to verse 12. But these, like irrational animals, I mean, Peter, whoa. I mean, he's putting, putting these people in a category of irrational animals that can't think for themselves. Irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed. Yikes, Peter, it's a little heavy here. This is how important it is to Peter that people don't creep into God's church and lead people astray. This is how important it is. God's put this on his heart. He goes on. They blaspheme about matters of which they are ignorant. Another earmark. Not only are they, do they criticize freely, but they talk about stuff they don't even know. But they talk like they do know. Don't be those people. And don't be around those people. They will also be destroyed in their destruction. Verse 13, they will suffer wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. So what is Peter saying here? He's not saying you can help them suffer wrong for the wage of their wrongdoing. He's not saying that when false teachers or people that want to lead astray or people that are overly critical, it's not your job to fix them. It's not your job. Now, it is your job to be gracious and speak truth. So feel free to give people, when they are overly critical, God's truth. And ask them, is there grace in what you're saying? It's not your job to try to fix what they're saying. It's not your job to try to change their hearts. We know we can't do that. We can't even change our own hearts. So we leave it to God. And speak the truth in love. That's what Scripture continually tells us. Your speech should be seasoned with grace and truth. But, verse 13 in the middle there goes into our second point. First, these folks criticize freely. They are slaves to their own pride. Needing to look better than other people. Don't be those people. Let's not allow Jesus to be represented in our lives by needing to be better than others. Let's not be that. So first, they criticize freely. They are slaves to their own pride. Secondly, they celebrate sin. Look in verse 13 with me. It says, they count it a pleasure to revel in the daytime. That's not a typical phrase for me. I had to kind of look into that and say, what does he mean, revel in the daytime? 
Basically, what Peter's saying is, not only do these folks celebrate sin, which typically is celebrated at night or in the darkness or in hidden places. He says, no, these people are so bold, they celebrate sin right in broad daylight. Right out there. For everybody to see. They celebrate sin. And you might think, well, we would never listen to anybody who does that. Sometimes they shade it. Sometimes they make it sound right. But there's something inside you that the Holy Spirit says, hey, that's not quite right. That's not what I have for you. That's not truth. But these people are so bold that they will put it right out there in the middle of the day. This word revel, it's literally this idea of celebrating. It's not just that sin is present in their life because we all have to battle the fact that sin is still present, right? It's still in the world. It's still a part of us, and hopefully it is a diminishing part of us as we walk with the Lord, and he makes us more and more like him. But until we get delivered to heaven, or Jesus comes back, sin's going to be part of our world. So it doesn't mean that these people sin. It's the fact that they celebrate it. It's the fact that they would stand and say, I've heard this many times, and we see it much in today's world taking something that God has called wrong and saying, it's right. God wouldn't judge me for that. That's not true. The idea that God doesn't judge does not coincide with verse nine. God does judge sin. He judges sin so strongly that he sent his own son to pay for it with his death. So God definitely judges sin. I try in my own personal life, and I've asked the Lord to help me with this, to to not be angry, to not sin in my anger. Because there are certain things that you should be upset about in the world, right? There are atrocities that defame the image of God and that hurt people that we should be upset about. But you shouldn't sin in those things in your anger. So we have to kind of listen to the Lord and allow this, this line in the middle, right? And there's lots of things. I'll give you one of the most current ones, right? This atrocity that's happening in Ukraine. I saw a headline that said there was a hospital blown up. And I thought to myself, sign me up, I'll go. Let's let's just. And all of a sudden I heard the Lord say to me, oh, calm down. Number one, you can't fix anything. Number two, your anger is not what I want to bring out of you. When we see these kind of atrocities in our world, we see sin being celebrated in different ways, whether it's the destruction of people who bear God's image or whether it's in our own world and and more in our culture today where there's things that directly speak against the way that God has created things to work, whether it's sexuality, the human body, the family, And we see people who actually will name the name of Christ celebrating sinful behavior. That's what this is talking about. Right in broad daylight. Those things should elicit a response from God's people. But here's what the response should be. The response should be, 
Lord, help me to never go there. God, please protect my heart. I might not have that sin pattern, but I got my own. Help me not to land in a place where I celebrate sin in my life. That, that's how we should respond. But we need to identify and know that people celebrating the opposite of God's plan is false teaching. God will take care of it in the end, but don't get enamored by it and don't get led astray. We have to know God's word in order to identify those things with which he has said clearly. Verse 13 in the middle there says, they counted a pleasure to revel in the daytime. We're familiar with this. And Peter was familiar with it in his day and age. He says, they are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. This is where Peter's getting real specific. He says, some of these people, and the word feast here is actually a term that is used in the first century church about a love feast. It's, it's the meal that surrounded them taking communion together. He says, some of these people are sitting with you at the love feast of Christ and they're taking communion with you and they are celebrating sin and they are overly critical in their hearts and in their spirit and their words. Peter's warning against it. He says, some of them are right around you. You need to be aware of this. He says, they're blots and blemishes. Instead of bringing blessings to the family of God, which is what us as followers of Christ should bring to God's family as blessings, instead, they're bringing blemishes and tarnishing God's name by the way that they're living. So they, they criticize freely, which means they are slaves to their own pride, and they celebrate sin, which means they are slaves to their old nature. So even in naming the name of Christ and even wanting to be perceived as followers of Jesus or Christians, they celebrate sin, which shows you they are still enslaved to their old nature. Thirdly, look at verse 15. Or verse 14 is the end here. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. It's interesting that this phrase is in here. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. Basically, they can't get enough of it. We, we see that in our world, don't we? People just can't get enough of sin. Diving headfirst into it and just pushing that way. Insatiable is the word here. Their thirst for sin is never quenched. It says they entice unsteady souls. So here's, as your pastor in front of you today, I want to agree with Peter. They will entice unsteady souls. Don't be unsteady. God has given us truth. He's given us his character. He's revealed it through centuries and centuries of time. And he brings Jesus and changes our hearts. Don't get shaken. Be steady. Be here. Settle on who God is and what he's done. And don't let anybody take you off that path. Don't be unsteady. Be consistent. Because these folks will lead the unsteady away says they have hearts trained in greed. This is our third point. They are coveters. They always want more. This word trained in greed. 
This is an interesting phrase he uses here. It's not just that they're greedy. It's the fact that they're trying to perfect that greed. They're working at it. They're thinking, not only do I covet and am I greedy about things, but I'm going to keep trying to be more like that. Because this is where sin goes, right? If you don't root sin out of your lives, if I don't root sin out of my life, it doesn't just stay stagnant in one particular level. It grows. So these people are trained in greed, and they deceive. They are accursed children, at the end of verse 14. Forsaking the right way, in 15, they have gone astray. They've turned away from the way that God has led them in a different direction. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. If you do not know the story of Balaam, it is one of the most entertaining things in Scripture. Okay? Balaam is this prophet who's wandering around. God gives him a word to say. Balaam decides he's not going to do that. Instead, he's going to go the other direction. And in Balaam, what says here, in his madness, he's walking with his donkey in a particular way to be with those of Balak and, and create false teachings, all this kinds of things. We don't have time to go into all of it. But in the middle of all of this, Balaam's donkey, because Balaam wouldn't listen to anybody else, Balaam's donkey talks to him in a human voice. That's a super fun story to read. You can go find it. But here's the issue. These false teachers, Peter is comparing to Balaam, who needed a donkey to get his attention. That's how ignorant and how shaded and how off the path Balaam had gone, away from what God had told him to do. It says he was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice. That's a fun one. I think they need to include that in one of these movies they're making. Right? It's kind of like, I actually, the, the time I, th- I would think about this is, if you've ever seen the movie Shrek, right? There's a donkey in Shrek. He's got a great Scottish accent, but he talks, right? And I remember the first time I saw that movie, I thought, there's a talking donkey. <laughs> that was in the Bible. I remember that story, right? But this is how ridiculous it is to actually get so far off of God's path that he has something that he has called you to do, but you are way over here in left field. You don't hear his voice anymore. You don't heed his warnings. You're not willing to be corrected. And all of a sudden, a donkey starts talking to you. That'll get your attention. He restrained the prophet's madness. By a talking donkey. Verse 17. Remember, these folks are criticizing freely. They are celebrating sin. And they are covetous and deceivers. Look at verse 17. These are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. What are these two word pictures for us? A waterless spring. What is that? That's a deception. You go to a spring to get water. If you were to go to a spring to get water and the spring was dry and there was no water, that spring is a liar. It's supposed to give you water. 
But when getting there, it doesn't give you water. That's what false teachers actually are. They promise things they can't deliver. They look like one thing, only they're not. They're deceivers. Where does this fall in our particular day and age in our world? How do we see this? We see this with people who say, if you just pray the right prayer, God will pour down on you monetary blessings and everything in your life will go great. That's a lie from the pit of hell. God never promises you that. He never does. He promises you that no matter how hard it gets, he's with you. He will go with you. That you will not have to live in that forever because heaven is void of that. But he doesn't promise you if you do something or the, the weirdest one is people on, guys on TV and they say, if you send me $10, God will bless you sevenfold. Really? I think I just lost $10. That's not how God's economy works. God's blessings are better than anything that someone in this world is going to promise you. It's not a waterless spring. It's that one where you're like, I think there might be a spring around here. And all of a sudden you turn a corner and there's fresh water gushing out in front of you to quench your thirst. That's God fulfilling promises. But these kind of people, these false teachers who criticize freely, who celebrate sin in their own lives and in the lives of others, and are greedy people, they never deliver on what they say they will. They're like a waterless spring or a mist driven by a storm. Because when a mist comes in, what would happen if for those who are farmers and tilling the land, a mist would start to come in and you think, we're going to get rain. We're going to get rain, the crops are going to grow, and then the storm blows that mist right away and there's no rain. It's an unfulfilled promise. So they are slaves to greed and want, and they always want more. So where does that leave us in this warning of a chapter, right? What I want you to walk away with is this. What I want all of us, myself included, to walk away with is this. The, this description is not Jesus. Because Jesus does the opposite of each of these. The Holy Spirit grows in our lives the ability to be more like him. But being more like him is not having a critical spirit. Being more like him is not celebrating sin, but instead sin grieves us and we mourn it. Being more like him is not greed and deceit. It's humility and graciousness and honesty. See, each of these things are the opposite of what God wants to do in the life of the follower of Christ. Peter has condemned all three of these sins in the false teacher's lives, criticizing freely, celebrating sin, greed and deceit. All of these sins grow from pride and a selfish desire. But in contrast, a true servant of God is humble and seeks to serve others. That's where you know it's genuine in somebody's life. That's where you know they're following Jesus. Because humility is part of their character. And they seek to serve, not want to be served. The true servant of God does not think about praise or pay because he serves God from a humble and obedient heart. They honor God and the authority that God has established in the world. 
In short, and here's our finishing sentence. In short, the true servant of God will pattern themselves after the life we see in Christ. Because we have been set free from the desires of the old nature. See, these descriptions are people who name the name of Christ but have never moved away from the old life. The followers of Christ, genuine followers of Jesus, are humble people who look more and more like Christ the longer they're here. And in doing so, we demonstrate that we have been set free from the old nature with all of its trappings. So, as we pray and as we respond through our time of singing together before we get sent back into the mission field, which is every week. Remember these two things that God has placed in your hands in order to be faithful. A trowel to build on chapter one. All that he has done for you and all that he has brought to your life, everything you need pertaining to life and godliness, build on that. And a sword in the other hand. To fend off multiple things, false teachers, and to kill your old flesh, to get rid of sin in your life. So remember as we look at these characteristics, don't be these people, but also don't be with these people either. Distance yourself and draw close to God in his word. That will protect us from being led astray by those who would seek to. Him.